I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, we take a look at labor from some entirely new angles. First, the view of a scholar who thinks our jobs are literally hurting us. I do not think people's health should depend upon the whim or wisdom of their CEO. I think people have a right to have a job that does not kill them. Then, female World War II vets who never got the credit they deserved. But that doesn't mean their work wasn't vital. It's impossible to overstate how many ships we were sinking, how many Japanese ships and German U-boats we were sinking as a result of these intelligence reports that the women were drawing up. And finally, we shouldn't hate robots, we should work with them, at least according to chess champ Gary Kasparov. We could actually use chess as a model for collaboration. You cannot beat them, join them. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1984, a labor reporter named Robert Levering and an editor named Milton Moskowitz wrote a book that made a big splash. But the splash may not have been quite big enough. The book was called The 100 Best Companies to Work For in America, and it became a bestseller. And they found then that the companies on the Great Place to Work list outperformed uh, the companies that weren't on that list. Jeffrey Pfeffer is a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business who says study after study has shown that good workplaces are better for workers and for companies' bottom lines. And it is nonetheless the case that companies haven't emulated uh, those practices. So we've known about this stuff for 30 or 40 years. We've known the health effects of workplace stress for decades, and we haven't done anything. Pfeffer says the costs of not doing anything are tremendous. He's the author of the book Dying for a Paycheck, which this time of year, right around Labor Day, seems particularly salient. It argues that lots of studies prove something that few people realize— our jobs are a major health risk, resulting in, for a number of reasons, 120,000 deaths a year in America. Which, by the way, I believe to be a low estimate, even though that would make it the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S. Much of the anxiety that surrounds jobs has to do with a lack of control. Not knowing what your hours will be, worrying that you'll get laid off, being micromanaged— pioneering work on this lack of control was done by a scholar named Sir Michael Marmot, who appeared on this show a couple of years ago. Marmot has shown that those with power at work tend to do a lot better than those without it. We calculated in England, and the figures would be similar in the U.S., if not more dramatic, that if you're in the middle, you have eight fewer years of healthy life than if you were at the top. And eight fewer years of healthy life means earlier onset of decline in grip strength, earlier onset of difficulty walking, earlier onset of decline in mental function. Jeffrey Pfeffer, the professor at Stanford Business School, says there are lots of models of successful companies to emulate. He points to healthcare companies like DaVita, which provides kidney dialysis, and Southwest Airlines, and SAS, which is a software company. And then there's Patagonia a clothing manufacturer that Pfeffer says shows their employees they care about them. They have organized their work so that 26 times a year, you get a three-day weekend. Uh, they have organized their work so that if the surf's up, you can take off and go. Um, because the theory is that I'm, I've given you, I've hired good people. 
You're an intelligent person. You will get your work done. If the surf's up and you go to surfing, you'll work some other time when the surf's not up. It's going to be okay. But it's not all surfing and long weekends. So one of the things when I interviewed their head of HR, he said, we measure the percentage of working age women who return to Patagonia after giving birth. And they do all kinds of things um, to make that easy for them. And in Patagonia's case, 99% of the women who are working for them, who when they get pregnant and have a kid, return to Patagonia after delivery. And that is something that they hold themselves accountable for. Instead, what most American workers have, Pfeffer argues, is economic insecurity, a workplace that does not help with the task of balancing work and family, a sense that they're not being treated fairly, and a lack of autonomy. I could tell you that the epidemiological evidence on the effects of these factors plus some others on people's health and their mortality is significant, is profound, has been documented over, you know, decades. Uh, so there's an enormous epidemiological literature on the effects of work practices on people's health. Right. And one of the ways in which work practices affect people's health is directly. But the other way in which work practices affect people's health is through their effect on individual behaviors. So people who are stressed are more likely to smoke more. There's evidence mm -hmm. for that. They're more likely to drink more. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to overeat. They're more likely, as an article from a, in the New York Times by a psychiatrist said, we call it comfort food for a reason. They are more likely uh, to engage in illicit drug taking. They are less likely to exercise. So stress affects not only people's health directly, but through its effect on their individual health-relevant behaviors. What if a manager said to you, look, I understand what you're saying, but it's very important that I am on top of all the time what the people under me are doing, because what if they aren't like, what if they're not doing their work? Like, I, I need to be on top of things all the time. And like, you know, when you talk about work family balance, it's great to have work family balance. But my job as a manager is to make sure this company is productive. You know, I can't worry too much about people's families. Well, what I would say is two things. Number one, number I actually say three things. Number okay. one, it is it is not surprising to find that people who are stressed are more likely to quit. So stress leads to turnover. Turnover is expensive. Mm -hmm. Number two, it is not surprising, but of course, academic research demonstrates this thing, even though it's not surprising. It is not surprising to know that people who come to work sick don't do as well mm -hmm. uh, on the job. Their productivity and their performance suffers. And number three, contrary to what managers may think, there is evidence at the national level, in a nice chart in The Economist magazine. There's evidence at the industry level, which I cite in Dying for a Paycheck. There's evidence at the company level that suggests that long work hours is negatively related to productivity beyond a certain point, yeah. and that we have known for 40 or 50 years through a variety of research studies that job autonomy, giving people more control and more say, and not micromanaging them, leads to higher levels of engagement and higher levels of motivation and productivity. I think it's horrible to look at the Gallup data and find that worldwide only 15%, that's one five percent of people are engaged at their work with the rest of the people being either disengaged or actively disengaged, which Gallup defines as basically trying to sabotage their employer. Hmm. You argue that things have gotten worse in the last 
two or three decades. What is pushing things to get worse and third of the effects on people's health to be worse? I think there's several things that have caused things to get worse. Number one, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago in the 1950s in particular, CEOs saw their job as one of managing a set of relationships among stakeholders. There were customers, there were employees, there were shareholders, there was the community. And now it is all about the shareholders. So stakeholder Mm. capitalism has been replaced by shareholder capitalism. Mm. Number two, Job tenure, as my colleague at Wharton, Peter Capelli, has shown, as among other people, job tenure has gone down. We have more people working under contract arrangements. There's a study that came out recently that shows that basically 94% of the job growth between 2005 and 2015 is with impermanent contract labor in the United States. So to the extent that I'm dealing with people that I don't see and that I don't know, I'm not going to feel as responsible for their well-being. And then there's the gig economy and the development of all of this software that permits me to monitor you and schedule you, which makes you feel in a much more precarious position. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about white-collar jobs versus blue-collar jobs. Uh, I mean, classically, I think people would think blue-collar jobs are worse for your health because the labor tends to be more physical. Maybe you're working in construction, you're working on a factory line. I mean, things could literally... You know, it's much more likely that an accident would happen to you, you'd fall, something would land on you, and that would be the the health risk of that job. But give me an overall sense, what is the health risk of a blue-collar job right now in America versus a white-collar job? Well, ironically, the health risks that you just described of, you know, accidents or uh, chemical spills, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration um, has largely taken care of those. And so the death toll and the illness toll from those have gone way, way down. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which I've talked to, understands very, very well the psychosocial risks, for instance, of workplace stress, as does the U.K. counterpart of OSHA, which would be the health and safety executive. Mm -hmm. And they just had a report out recently on the tremendous number of workdays lost to workplace stress. Mm -hmm. So while OSHA and HSE have understood the the consequences of workplace stress for various reasons, including governments and politics and funding, they have not been able to intervene. So at the moment, I see lots of pain, even in the Silicon Valley, Hmm. people working exceptionally long hours. One of the things I talk about in Dying for a Paycheck is the Palo Alto Medical Foundation, which sends out a mobile van to call on Highly paid engineers who, by the way, have health insurance as well as a lot of income, who believe that they are too busy to go in and see their doctor. And the wonderful quote from the head of the this PAMF program says, I've seen 30-year-old engineers with 50-year-old bodies. Hmm. And by the way, once you have a 50-year-old body as a 30-year-old, it's going to be tough to get the 30-year-old version of yourself back. <laughs> I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Jeffrey Pfeffer, author of Dying for a Paycheck. He's also a professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Um, So you write about the CEO of the insurance company, Aetna, and how Aetna changed its approach towards the health of its workers. Talk about that and talk about why, what prompted them to do that. Well, the CEO of Aetna had two, I think, life-changing experiences. Uh, One was he had an extremely severe 
a skiing accident, which left him in kind of chronic pain in one of his arms. Um, and they, they didn't even re ever regain full use of that arm. And number two, his son um, had an incidence of uh, some relatively rare but important childhood cancer. And I think this brought home to him the fact that uh, that health risks and health care issues could, uh, could affect almost anybody. And so uh, Mark Bertolini is his name, did a bunch of things. He, number one, raised the salary of everybody at Aetna who was making less than $15 or $16 an hour to that $15 or $16 an hour level, uh, which, and we know that salary is related to health because income is related to health. And so that was number one. Number two, he put in a bunch of other kinds of supplementary things, uh, such as yoga and stress reduction classes. And number three, he made sure that the, that the people who work for Aetna were, were getting access to good health care and tried to improve the organization's culture with respect to health. So all of those things came out of a personal, personally transformative experiences that caused him uh, to change Aetna's approach to its workforce. Mm -hmm. And with all due respect, I think this is a fabulous story. It's wonderful. But when I hear this story and similar stories like Bob Chapman and Barry Waymiller, who one day saw the light and decided to change his organization's culture, I think this is fabulous. But I do not think people's health should depend upon the whim or wisdom of their CEO. Mm -hmm. I think people have a right to have a job that does not kill them. So why haven't other companies looked at Patagonia or SAS or, you know, Southwest, you talked about never laying anybody off, and looked at that and said, well, gee, Southwest is doing pretty well and Patagonia is doing well and they're selling a bunch of jackets and sweatshirts and everything. So if that worked for them, we could do that too. We could treat people really well. We could make it so that they didn't leave and there was less turnover. And like you said, turnover is expensive. So why aren't other companies doing that? You would have to ask the CEOs of those other companies. <laughs> well, what do you think? It, make, it, it makes no sense to me. I really and truly don't know. When I sit in meetings and hear heads of HR obsess about their health care costs, because many large employers in the United States, most large employers in the United States are self-insured, which means they are responsible for their own health care costs. I don't understand why they're not addressing the workplace, which is where a lot of the cause of these high health care costs come. You know, uh, one of the quotes in the book is from Bob Chapman. And he says, you know, he, he stood, he says, I've stood in front of a thousand CEOs and said, you are the cause of the health care crisis. Three quarters of the disease burden in the United States, and by the way, in the world, according to the World Economic Forum, comes from chronic disease. Chronic disease comes, not exclusively, but importantly, from stress. Stress comes from work. So if we want to fix healthcare costs, let alone uh, people's well-being, and, and, and as Michael Marmot said nicely, how many years of good, productive, useful, healthy life they have, we need to look at the workplace. And why we're not doing that, I have no idea. But that's one of the reasons why I wrote Dying for a Paycheck. I am trying to wake people up to the seriousness of this problem, to the pervasiveness of this problem, and to the fact that the problem can, in fact, be fixed. Do you see governments either here in, in states, uh, federal, um, or any other place in the world um, paying attention to the data that you've looked at, looking at sort of the healthcare harms from workplaces and saying, whoa, you know, healthcare is a huge burden for this state, country, uh, you know, whatever it is, and, and we should pay some attention here. 
Um, I think the United Kingdom has begun to pay attention to this. There was a commission, actually, Sir Michael Marmot was on that commission called the Atkinson Commission. Uh, but, you know, this is a political thing that's fraught with, you know, beliefs about whose responsibility it is to take care of employees and how much deregulation or regulation we're going to have of business. But to me, this is analogous to the environmental movement 40 or 50 years ago with respect to the physical environment. 40, 50 years ago, I had companies say, we can't afford to not pollute the air and the water and the ground because we would be uncompetitive. We can't compete with China or whatever. Mm -hmm. We can't afford to do this. This is a, this is costly. And we decided this was no longer tolerable. Sooner or later, we may decide uh, that uh, social pollution or human pollution is no longer tolerable either. But uh, in the meantime, we'll see. So th there are governments, by the way, the New Zealand government said famously when they were confronted with these data, well, you know, this is work and it, th th there's nothing we can do about about it. Well, so time will tell. I'm hoping that people, government people, employers, and employees will wake up uh, to the seriousness of this issue. Because one of the questions that I'm often asked is what surprised me about all of this? It's worse than I thought. If you feel like you're in a workplace that's really not all that good for your health, that's not making you feel all that good about yourself, what should you do? Quit. A, cons a nice, concise answer. Well, so, and, and when people say to me, so here's the analogy I would draw. First of all, you start with the premise, which we've also demonstrated in a published paper, that many of the workplace exposures are as harmful to people as secondhand smoke in terms of their effects on self-reported physical health, mental health, having a physician-diagnosed illness, and mortality. So I say to people, you know, it is a nice, concise answer. If you were in a room that was filling up with smoke, what would you do? Would you say, well, you know, there's not a better room to go to? Would you give yourself a bunch of rationalizations? Or would you get out of that room? Mm -hmm. And this is exactly the analogy. If you're in a place that is jeopardizing your health, both physical and mental, and the two, of course, are related, you need to exit the room. And you just say, if, if you're dependent on that money, just... Try to figure out a way to get a different job. That you can. There are within every industry better and worse workplaces. You can look at the great place to work less, the best place for the for working mothers. All of these lists. They span. All of these companies span a variety of industries. There are retailers. There are manufacturers. There are software companies. There are consulting firms. There are even law firms. Yeah, even though law firms are not always the healthiest places to work. So. There are better and worse workplaces within every industry and within every occupation. There are places where the CEO cares about the well-being of the people whose lives have been entrusted to that individual, and there are CEOs who don't care. And you are much better off with the former than the latter. Hmm. Jeffrey Pfeffer is the author of the new book, Dying for a Paycheck, How Modern Management Harms Employee Health and Company Performance and What We Can Do About It. He's also a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Jeffrey, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. We 
We've got articles on the company culture at some of the places that Pfeffer praised, from Southwest Airlines to Patagonia to the software firm SAS. That's all at our website, innovationhub.org. Drowning in a pool of tears. And I've seen a lot of good folk die. Had a lot of bills to pay. In 1941, Anne White was a senior at Wellesley College when she received a letter. It was an invitation to meet with a professor in the astronomy department. But it wasn't about grades or a class that she had to make up. Instead, the professor asked Anne two simple questions. Did she like crossword puzzles? And was she engaged to be married? Anne White was being recruited as a codebreaker, and there were legions of other women that would work alongside her as cryptographers during World War II. The importance of codebreaking in that war is pretty well known, but the fact that so many of the people who were actually breaking the codes were women is not. In a week when we think a lot about labor and what it gets us, this is a story of labor that went mostly unnoticed for a long, long time. Liza Mundy is the author of Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. Liza, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So um, why did these secret letters that I was just talking about, why did they start being sent out? And who, like, how did the military initially know who to send the letters to? That's a great question. So the reason that the letters started going out boils down to basically this surprise attack at Pearl Harbor. Okay. Uh, in, in December of 1941, uh, our Pacific fleet was attacked by the Japanese and many thousands of American men died in an attack that we had no idea that it was coming. So Pearl Harbor simultaneously uh, thrust us into World War II. Uh, suddenly, we were fighting pretty much in all corners of the globe. And at the same time, it exposed our incredible deficit of intelligence gathering. Mm. And it's it's so hard to kind of cast our minds back to that time. We have 17 intelligence agencies right. in Washington now, but we had nothing huh. back then. And so the fact that it was a surprise uh, caused a lot of uh, finger pointing mm-hmm. in the U.S. Navy and and the recognition that we had to ramp up our intelligence gathering instantly and specifically our code breaking. So the U.S. Navy reached out to the Seven Sisters Colleges and some other women's colleges. Let, let me just stop you right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why reach out to women's colleges? Why not reach out to Harvard or right. or you know Rice University or what like why women's colleges? Well, that's what the Navy had been in the in the tradition of doing before the war. It would reach out for its intelligence officers to Harvard and mm-hmm. MIT and mm-hmm. Yale, like to turn to the most elite schools. But all of a sudden, all those men were gone. All those men were unavailable huh. uh, for intelligence gathering or learning how to become code breakers. They were shipping out to mm-hmm. Europe, there to the Atlantic, to the Pacific. They just weren't there. Mm-hmm. So when I was was doing my research for this book, I actually found a memo in the National Archives in which someone in the Navy, an official, uh, typed up new source women's colleges. Hmm. So if they couldn't get the Ivy League, they were going to turn to the female equivalent. Hmm. So after the women were recruited, and you know, a lot of people were recruited in college, so they're not done with college yet. They get this kind of secret letter in the mail. They go, they visited often a professor at the college who was kind of the clearinghouse for right. these women who'd gotten these secret letters. And they were taking these also secret courses in uh, crypt analysis. They were not supposed to tell anybody what they were doing. How did they 
key, how can you have a secret life where you're taking classes and nobody knows what the class is about and what work you're doing for? How can you possibly keep that secret? Right. So they were taking classes at night in locked classrooms. At Wellesley, it was taught, the class was taught in the astronomy observatory, which is kind of set off from the main campus. And the thinking was that if there were lights on at night in the observatory, nobody would really question why. Hmm. At Goucher College, they were taking classes, the young women, at a, in a locked classroom at the top of Goucher Hall, hmm. uh, again at night. So you can't have the enemy know that you're working their code system or that you've broken their code system because the enemy then will change the code system. Mm -hmm. But ironically enough, it turned out to be easier for women to keep the secret. When they came to Washington, they were told that if anybody asked them what they were doing in these top secret compounds where they were working, that they should say that they were secretaries Mm -hmm. and that they sharpened pencils and filled wastebaskets. And because they were women, people believed that Mm -hmm. the work they were doing couldn't possibly be interesting or important. Mm. Um, And and how hard, you know, you talk about these classes that are really secret. How hard was what they were trying to learn and what they were trying to do? It was really hard. I mean, when I was doing my research, I read I read a lot of the training materials, which still exist in the National Archives, mm-hmm. and I could understand the principles of what they did. And, and, you know, certain kind of elementary steps, like one of the first things you learn to do is take what's called a frequency count, and you understand that the alphabet has certain mathematical properties. So in the English language, there are certain letters that appear more often than other letters like S and T and E. Mm-hmm. There are certain letters that appear together a lot, mm-hmm. S and T or mm-hmm. EST or ION, right. and they learn how to sort of study the behavior, the mathematical behavior of language. So if those letters get scrambled and all of a sudden they're seeing a cipher in which Z appears frequently, then they might think, well, maybe Z is E. And so maybe it's been substituted for a common letter. So they learned how to do that. And, and that, that doesn't sound that hard, but it very, very quickly gets quite difficult. And there were so many different code systems being used. Uh, World War II was a global war being fought in every corner of the globe. Right. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have emails. Telephones weren't used that much. So all of the enemy, all of the commanders were were communicating with their troops via radio, and all that was being encrypted by different systems. So it was fantastically complicated, is all I can say. Hmm. So I assume that they were mostly working on German and Japanese codes, that those were the most important. Was there one that was far harder? I mean, I just wonder to what lengths the Germans and the Japanese went to to encode things, and if one got broken way before the other or... Yeah. Well, there was one that got broken before the war by a woman, a graduate of the University of Buffalo, Genevieve Grochen. She broke this incredibly important code that was being used by Japanese diplomats who were stationed in Europe. They were communicating back with Tokyo. So ironically enough, this was the best, our best intelligence coming out of Europe because they were hanging out with Hitler and Mussolini Mm -hmm. and other Axis leaders. So one of the incredibly important pieces of intelligence we got from that code system. The Japanese diplomats were invited to tour the coast of France, and they reported back in detail on where the coast of France was well fortified and where it wasn't. So when we were planning the D-Day landings, we knew that Normandy would be a better place to land than other parts of the coast. So that's Mm -hmm. the kind of uh, intelligence we were getting Mm -hmm. for our own strategic planning. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Liza Mundy, the author of Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. I just wonder if you kind of take a step back and you think, you know, of 
being a military leader or being a government leader in the early 1940s, and you have this incredibly important job, cryptography. Now, I, I know, as you said, you know, men are off fighting, and so there's not a lot of men around who can help. But, you know, women don't run anything, right? They don't run the government. They don't run the military. They don't, they don't you know, run almost anything in the U.S. at the time. Why trust women? Why believe that women could take on a job that is clearly so crucial? Why not keep back just some of the men who could have gone to the front? Well, necessity is the mother of inclusion, right? I mean, <laughs> it, to a certain extent, we didn't have a choice. But I would say at the beginning of this effort, uh, there was some skepticism about whether women could do the work and right. whether women could keep a secret. Mm -hmm. So at first, they brought in women, but they did have male officers who were in charge. Uh, but as the women proved that they could do the work, and, and you had literally, you had 22-year-old women who were breaking Japanese military code systems and compiling intelligence report every day mm -hmm. for the U.S. Pentagon. As the women proved that they could do the work. They brought in more and more women and shipped the men out to sea. And often the men were supplementing their efforts in the theater of battle. So the men were sort of doing it in the field. The women were doing it domestically in Washington. And ultimately, there were 11,000 women or more uh, doing the work largely in the Washington, D.C. area. Hmm. But the, the women did have to prove that they could do the work. Mm -hmm. and, and the women who joined the Navy, they would become lieutenants. They would become naval officers. Hmm. They would be trained to shoot pistols huh. because at the Naval Code-Breaking Compound, there was a pistol on every desk in case anybody broke into the compound. Wow. So the women were taught to shoot. Mm -hmm. I read memos, you know, where male officers were discussing, like, God, can we teach these women how mm -hmm. to shoot? You know, they didn't have any clear regulations. So they decided, well, we got a pistol range. So yeah, let's teach them how to shoot. So they were sort of making it up as they went along and as the women were proving what they could do. Was the Pentagon and maybe government officials, were they quickly convinced that, like, yes, women are up to this task, even though we may have had some questions beforehand about whether they were or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the women uh, who was breaking Japanese army codes that told the location of Japanese troops, this was called order of battle. It was really important intelligence for the U.S. military. She said, you know, we, we broke those codes and we wrote up an intelligence report every day and the, and the Pentagon would send officers basically breathing behind our neck, uh, telling us what they needed and, and telling us to hurry up. Mm -hmm. So the military obviously had complete faith in the intelligence because we were sinking. It's impossible to over overstate how many ships we were sinking, how many Japanese ships and German U-boats we were sinking as a result of these intelligence reports that huh. the women were drawing up hmm. and the breaking of messages that foretold where Japanese supply ships and Japanese naval ships hmm. would be. That hmm. intelligence would go to an American submarine commander who would be waiting when the ship appeared on the horizon. It was always in the right place at the right time. And we just sunk thousands and thousands of ships. You say that some women broke codes that revealed that ships or uh, particular areas that were occupied by people that they loved, that they knew that those places or those ships had been captured by the enemy or the ship had been sunk by the enemy. I mean, that just seems traumatizing to figure that something like that out. Absolutely. Uh, one of the women in my book was, uh, she rose to become a lieutenant. She was what they called a watch officer. She was heading the shift okay. at the Naval Code Breaking Compound when they broke a message saying that her own brother's ship out in the Pacific was being targeted by a kamikaze. Of course, the kamikaze raids toward the end of the war were terrible. And she assumed that her brother was dead. She later told her son that the only thing she could keep doing was her work. Uh, it did eventually emerge that her brother was one of the few that had survived. But that just shows how 
how stressful the work was. There were other women who were able to keep tabs on their brotherships and report back to their parents that, you know, that so far their brothers were okay. Huh. Uh, but they couldn't tell their parents how they knew that. So how long did the codebreakers work? Did they work all the way up until the end of the war in 45? And then what happened to them, you know, the day after D-Day and VJ Day? Like, what happened? Yeah, the women worked, you know, they worked uh, 24 hours a day. They worked uh, eight-hour shifts uh, all day long. They worked absolutely until the end of the war. One of my most moving chapters in terms of reporting it and writing was the group of women who were breaking and reading the German U-boat codes, and they experienced the D-Day landing. They were they were on the midnight shift on, on June 6, uh, 1944. They knew that the landing was going to happen, but they didn't know what day it was would happen. Uh, They thought it wouldn't happen on the 6th because we had a full moon. But I read um, logs showing that at 1.30 in the morning, which would have been, you know, later on in Europe, they started receiving German messages in which the Germans were describing with shock and awe uh, the Allied ships that were appearing on the horizon. So Mm. the women experienced the D-Day landing from the point of view of the Germans who were chattering up and down the French coast about what was happening. So that was incredibly moving. And also the women experienced the Japanese surrender Mm. in the code-breaking compound. It was actually a woman who uh, was sitting at the uh, receiving machine. Uh, The Japanese surrender message came out a sort of a, a lesser Japanese cipher system. And there was a young woman who had mastered that system and, and knew it better than anybody. And they knew that the surrender message was coming, but again, they didn't know when. And she was sitting there and received it. So she was the first person hmm. to know that uh, that Japan was surrendering. Yeah. And and of course, there was enormous celebration in, in Washington. The women all described that. They thought that, they, that we would roll up the code-breaking operations after World War II, you know, that we wouldn't need to do them anymore. Right. But very quickly, uh, the wartime code breaking turned into Cold War code breaking. And we were reading the codes of the Soviets and the East Germans and the Cubans and the Chinese. And there were a number of women who stayed on with what became the NSA, the National Security Agency. Uh, And there were a number of women who were leading Cold War code breaking. There was a woman named Juanita Moody who was in charge of our Cuban code breaking, which was considered a little bit of a backwater until the Cuban Missile Crisis Mm -hmm. happened. And she was leading the code breaking for that. Uh, so most of the women did have to leave. They returned to sort of their normally scheduled lives. They got married. Uh, they had babies. They received no credit for what they did. They were told never to talk about it. My central character, Dot, uh, had never talked about it till I interviewed her. Um, her younger brothers both survived the war. They both had jobs after the war that entailed top-secret security clearances. They would get together and brag about their clearances, and Dot could never tell them that she had had a top-secret security <laughs> clearance also. So that's the sort of thing they had to put up with. Just talk a little bit. Like, you went out and talked to a lot of these people. Um just talk a little bit about like what that was like and where you met people and you know what kinds of things they were telling you. Yeah. Okay. Well, I generally I've spent a lot of time in assisted living facilities okay. and um, I've I've eaten a lot of uh, tuna fish salad and <laughs> butternut squash soup. Um, okay. But I've had just incredible. Uh, interviews, talking to these women were born in 1920, mm-hmm. you know, the year that women got the vote. They lived right. through the Great Depression. Uh, they experienced that aspect of American life. They were so spirited and so plucky, like even in their mid-90s. Mm. Uh, there was one woman here in Washington who was living in an assisted living facility, but she liked to meet me at the Cosmos Club downtown over Bloody Mary's, <laughs> and she would take public transportation to get to the Cosmos Club. Mm. And one day when this when the subway broke, 
broke down. She just got out of the subway in a neighborhood she didn't know, and she just waited for the bus so she could get downtown and we could talk and have Bloody Marys. Uh, and and there was another woman who, um, in an assisted living facility in Atlanta, she had broken her wrist the night before our interview, and I took her to the emergency room the next day, and we conducted our interview in the emergency room. Wow. Uh, and um, she said to me during the interview, you know, I just hope that I live long enough to see the book published, mm. because the women really wanted to finally get credit for the role that they had played in the war. And, and fortunately, she did live long enough to mm-hmm. see the, the book published. And some of the women have gone on little book tours. They've been really... Um, honored in their hometowns where they live and have given talks and and asked to sign books. And it's been very meaningful to see them get the recognition and credit that they should have had all along. Liza Mundy is the author of Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. She is a former reporter for The Washington Post and a senior fellow at New America. Liza, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. It's a pleasure. On our website, Liza Mundy takes a few minutes to tell us the story of her central character, Dot, who, when she got a chance to break codes, could not have been more thrilled. She was making $900 a year teaching school, overworked, underpaid. She had a boyfriend who had shipped out to battle and had sent her a diamond ring. Uh, She didn't really want to be engaged to him, but American women were told uh, that you can't upset the morale of the troops. That's at innovationhub.org. Long ago, Gary Kasparov had a showdown with the future, and the future won. Now, keep in mind, Kasparov hates losing. For nearly a 30-year span, he was ranked the top chess player in the world for all but three months. And even thinking about old games or moves that he missed decades ago annoys him. Which is why, for many, his matches against the IBM computer Deep Blue in the 1990s held so much importance. A month after his 1996 match against Deep Blue, he wrote about, quote, a new kind of intelligence across the table. That intelligence is now across all of our tables. Kasparov writes about this intelligence, its implications for us and the jobs we do, and why computers might be our partners rather than our foes. In his most recent book, Deep Thinking, Where Machine Intelligence Ends and Human Creativity Begins. And one thing to note, as Kasparov pointed out to me a few months back when we spoke, he did beat Deep Blue in a series of games before Deep Blue turned the tables the following year. Still, Deep Blue's ability early on to steal even one game from Kasparov sent a signal. The fact that machine could beat a reigning world chess champion uh, under normal tournament conditions, that was already um, an indication that the rest would be just a matter of time. It's like uh, like a sign on the wall. Why do you think that you're facing off with Deep Blue has such kind of cultural resonance and gets talked about a lot. And it's kind of not even the specific game, but it, it's like this signpost, right? From the beginning of um, computer era, um, uh, there was a belief that chess could serve as the ultimate test for machines' intelligence. And also, the ch- game of chess was always seen as a nexus for human intellect. So that's why machine-facing humans in chess and winning this battle 
that definitely could be a revolutionary moment, is, is, is a watershed moment. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, the matches in 96, and especially in 1997, they were quite unique because it was just the beginning of this new era. It's the, the technology was introduced in our daily life. So people had very little access to technology before. Many did, but still, the when you look at the big numbers, it was just, you know, the grand opening. And I think the match in 1997 played a huge role in changing people's view about technology. It was a very annoying moment for me. But at the end of the day, um, if, I, if I have to think back what it was my curse or my blessing that uh, I became world champion when machines were really weak and I ended up my professional chess career when machines were unbeatable, I think it's more like a blessing because I was part of something unique, mm. unique experiment. Um, and uh, right. having a choice between being the first world champion to duck this challenge or to get in, into that and to lose, right. I'd rather prefer the latter. You could have come away from your experiences with artificial intelligence just kind of, you know, wanting to get as far away from AI as possible. But that's not really what you've done. You speak a lot at places that use AI, like Facebook, like Google, like hedge funds. What made you so interested in AI, even beyond chess? Uh, first of all, when we say AI, you know, I always ask people to be more precise um, about the meaning, because mm-hmm. if you ask 10 experts about meaning of AI, you may end up with 11 different answers. Yep. And yep. I personally, I prefer augmented intelligence okay. as a definition. And the reason why I was so engaged, still so much engaged in this debate, which is very much philosophical debate at this point, that is, um, I realized that while, after my match with Deep Blue in 1997, that while the, the rest of this fight against machines would be over fairly soon, so we could actually use chess as a model for collaboration. You cannot beat mm-hmm. them, join them. And um, okay. I came up with a concept that I called advanced chess, where we could have um, human and machine teaming up, uh, playing against other humans, uh, another human and machine. So we found out some, something quite interesting is that it's not about the strength of the player who is teaming up with the machine, but it's more about the interface. It's about the process. Because machines are so strong today, that is, you don't need uh, a very strong player to be a partner. Somehow it, it could even be a liability because strong players, they tend to play their own game. They don't want to recognize the fact that in many cases, machine is just superior. But it's about a good operator, someone who could add these uh, hints of human knowledge when it's required and to make sure that a machine doesn't lose its pass in certain situations where machine knowledge is not sufficient. So um, the formula that I drew out of my personal experience and my contemplations and analysis is that a weak human player uh, with average machine and superior process will always dominate in the game against stronger player even stronger machine, but inferior process. Can you see examples beyond chess of places where um, that kind of human-computer collaboration could be or is particularly important or powerful or useful? Everywhere, actually. This is, you, okay. you can hardly call area where it's not happening, but nobody understands how to get the best out of this. And uh, we can move into, say, medical diagnosis. So uh, we know that machines are getting better and better, though there's still the sub-areas where machine could not provide the best answer. But uh, Mm -hmm. if you apply the same formula into this area, so you'd rather have an experienced nurse working with with an algorithm than a top professor who, who will always be tempted to challenge machines' assumptions. 
You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Gary Kasparov, one of the great chess players of all time and author of the book Deep Thinking, Where Machine Intelligence Ends and Human Creativity Begins. You tell this story in your book that I didn't know anything about, but it's fascinating. You know, there were once upon a time thousands, actually tens of thousands of elevator operators. And you say that the... In New York, in New York. And and you say that the elevator companies actually had the technology to have essentially automated elevators, which is what we have now, right? You can operate them yourself. You just get in and press a button. It's easy. It takes you where you need to go. Nobody helps you. But they didn't want to introduce the technology because they were basically worried that people weren't ready for it. They were worried about the backlash. It's a fear. It's just a fear of something new, something unusual. Yeah, and it's for, for almost half a century the technology was there, but was not introduced. And what pushed people, you know, in this direction is is, is a general strike of the elevator operator union uh, that was very powerful in even mid forties. And when people had to climb to Empire State Building, they thought maybe we'd rather take a chance of pushing the button. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same will, will will happen in in the car industry. I bet you that 25, 30 years from now, uh, on this show, we'll have our children, grandchildren, talking about us, their parents and grandparents, being so stupid, driving cars, while right. the car accident killed more people than probably any, any other uh, uh, factor uh, in the modern life. So mm-hmm. it's, I think it's about us just simply recognizing that progress is, is inevitable and, and every technology is agnostic. It's neither good nor bad. It's, it's for us to use it. And unfortunately, looking back, at, at every major um, innovation, the breakthrough um, technology, it's it's always started with a destruction because it's easy to de- to destroy. You know, first you are when you have a nuclear uh, technology, first you, you come up with a nuclear bomb and then with a nuclear reactor. So, I mean, it certainly is true that technological change always switches around what people do. Um, you know, as we said, elevators showed us that. Maybe self-driving cars are going to show us that. But you also have scholars who say, like, this time feels different. Um, and that, you know, if you look at jobs, for example, you've got a bunch of jobs being created on the high end. You've got quite a few jobs being created on the low end. But it seems like there's not a lot of jobs being created in the middle, these jobs that, that support the middle class. Um, do you worry about that? Um, look, I think it's a history of human civilization. It's, uh, you may call it a progress. Mm-hmm. Since the, the dawn of human civilization, we have been inventing machines, some sort of for primitive mechanisms to replace farm animals. And then, uh, of course, we moved further by improving the, um, the quality of human labor. It ended up mm-hmm. with um, machines uh, destroying uh, millions and millions and millions of manufacturing jobs over the last few centuries. And that's what's there. And uh, the difference today is that all of a sudden machines are going after people with college degrees, political yeah. influence, and Twitter accounts. But if you look at the big yeah. picture of the history of civilization, this is normal. And I believe that's the way to move forward because hmm. any industry, any, any job that is not under pressure from technology, um, it ends up in stagnation. Um, yeah, I don't want to sound callous. I understand that people just are concerned about the jobs being lost, but this is something that I think we don't want to understand about technology. Technology brings mm-hmm. many benefits to our lives. We live longer. 
it's if you if you compare the the, the lifespan today with what was 100 years ago i think we had mm-hmm. at least 25 if not 30 years mm-hmm. thanks yeah. to technology thanks to uh, new um, new drugs new vitamins diet and also diagnosis so that's the things that could identify the terminal illnesses just uh, uh, at the early stage so people mm-hmm. live longer thanks to technology but the same technology carries the the negatives because it puts pressure on a middle class it puts pressure on, on people since they you know the younger people they are just they're more at demand so that's a paradox so uh, if we try to protract this agony if we try to slow down the process to delay the inevitable so what what is going to happen the jobs will be lost anyway but the new jobs will not be created on time to um, help us to move into the new um, so new cycle of economic growth to have more benefits and potentially financial cushion to help people who were left behind hmm. finally um, you have said when articles describe president trump or uh, President uh, Vladimir Putin as saying uh, that they are, quote, playing chess, right? Meaning that they are making these kind of tricky political moves, that that is an expression that really gets on your nerves. Why? Um, starting with Trump, I don't think he can play chess because it's, it's a very, <laughs> very short span of attention. So chess requires some concentration. Uh, also, um, chess is 100% transparent game. And uh, that's that's that works for uh, actually that doesn't work for both Trump and Putin. They don't like transparency. So mm-hmm. it's just the typically this is it's uh, less for Trump, more for Putin. But both are used to operate in some kind of the clandestine environment. So believing that uh, it's it's for for them to make all the decisions and then to inform or even not decide not to inform people about the outcome. So they're doing something, but not playing chess. Yeah, I would. I always wanted to compare Putin's game with poker because he was pretty good in 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 playing with weak hand, but bluffing, okay. raising stakes, and expecting <laughs> opponents to fold cards. Gary Kasparov is author of the new book Deep Thinking: Where Machine Intelligence Ends and Human Creativity Begins. He's also a former world chess champion. Gary, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. At the beginning of this conversation, we talked about Kasparov's match against Deep Blue about 20 years ago. People still debate whether it was a fair fight. We will have a link to a video from ESPN Films and 538 analyzing the match. It's on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino and engineer Doug Sugertz. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.